Well, if you hang out with me for uh, any length of time, you'll find out pretty soon that I love movies. One of my favorite movies, I'm sure a lot of you have probably seen, is called The Princess Bride. If you haven't seen it, it's a sort of uh, fairy tale kind of comedy uh, movie. I highly recommend it. Um, and there's a particular scene. There's a particular scene where the main protagonist, who incidentally is called Wesley, um, is a, he's apparently dead, right? And so his companions, they bring him to a certain healing man called Miracle Max, who is played by Billy Crystal. And after some examination, Miracle Max reveals that Wesley is not all dead, but only mostly dead. And so seeing that you know, this man is clinging to life for some particular reason, uh, Miracle Max, he leans down to the unconscious Wesley, and he sort of yells in his face, Hello in there. Hey, what's so important? What you got here that's worth living for? And you know, that's, that's actually a really good question. I wonder how you might answer if I asked you, what's so important? What's worth living for? Perhaps the most important thing to you is your family. Or perhaps your spouse. Maybe if you are a little self-centered, you might say the most important thing to you is you. But really, what is the most important thing? There are lots of answers you could give, but the truth is there's only one right answer. And in our passage today, the Apostle Paul is going to persuade us of that one right answer. He's going to remind us that the gospel is the most important thing, and therefore we must hold fast to it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Today we're going to cover the first 11 verses. I'll give you a moment to turn there. I'll begin at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul's letter to the Corinthians has covered a variety of topics, from church discipline to the spiritual gifts. Soon Paul will draw his letter to a close, but before he does, he has another point to address. And it's a question concerning the resurrection of the dead. But before he goes there, he's going to attack the root of the question, and the root is the gospel message itself. As he writes in verses 1 and 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul introduces the new section of the letter by way of reminder, a reminder of the gospel he preached to them. He says they received the gospel. They believed the message. And Paul says they now stand in it. This is to say they are continuing to walk in faith. And what will the outcome be? See, in verse 2, he writes, speaking of the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The outcome of an enduring faith in the gospel is salvation. It is important to note this qualification Paul makes. Salvation is by faith, and faith which is genuine always endures to the end. You can see that necessary condition right there in verse 2. He says, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preach to you. If they don't hold fast in faith, they will not be saved. And given all the problems with the Corinthians, which Paul has been addressing, he even brings up the possibility that they just might have believed in vain. This would be to say their so-called belief was not true saving faith. Now, those aren't two different things. He's warning them to endure in faith. He's, excuse me, those aren't two different things, believing in vain and failing to hold fast. They're actually the same thing. He's warning them to endure in faith for not doing so would show their faith to be counterfeit, not saving. So true faith in the gospel always endures and always leads to salvation. At this point, we might well ask the question, salvation from what? If you're here as a non-Christian, this is an especially important question for you to answer. What is it from which we must be saved? What is it from which you must be saved? And the answer to that question It has multiple facets to consider, but at the root of it all is sin. And what is sin? Sin is rebellion against the rule of God Almighty. Though God made us to worship him and enjoy him, instead we rebel and worship ourselves. 
serving our own interests and acting out our own desires, this is sin. For now, God has allowed our insubordination, but it will not always be so. In a coming day, God will squash the rebellion and pour out his wrath against all sin and upon all sinners. He will rightly condemn all those who oppose him to an eternity of punishment and pain in hell. And once you're there, that's that. There's no going back. If you're hearing that for the first time, it sounds like bad news, doesn't it? And it is bad news. But did you know that the word gospel, it actually means good news. And the good news of the gospel is this. Though you have rebelled against God, and you are in a state of hostility with him, he has made a way for you to be reconciled. He has made a way for you to be saved from his just wrath against you. It is through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. In just a moment, Paul is going to summarize the main points of the gospel beautifully. But before we get there, I want you to understand this from his opening words. The stakes couldn't be higher for you. The stakes are eternity. Do you understand eternity? It means forever. And you will, you will face eternity. It is only a question of whether it is an eternity of peace and joy in heaven or an eternity of pain and despair in hell. The stakes are high, which is why the gospel is of first importance. It is through our holding fast to the gospel that we will be saved. So, having established the importance of the gospel, what exactly is it? Paul will explain. I'll continue in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul reminds the Corinthians of that which is of first, that is of greatest importance, the gospel. And Paul presents the content or the facts of the gospel in three simple points. And the first is this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What exactly does Paul mean by that? What does it mean that Christ died for our sins? Paul is speaking of a doctrine which theologians call substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. What the heck is that? Let's break it down. First, it's substitutionary. 
Something, I know, obvious, something or rather someone is being substituted. In this case, we're talking about Christ being substituted or taking the place of sinners. And what did Christ do in the stead of ruined sinners? He atoned. He died for our sins. He paid the debt. He satisfied God's demands on us by taking the punishment we deserved because of our sins. He died in our place for our sins. And Paul also says this is in accordance with the scriptures. That's shorthand for the Old Testament. He's saying the Old Testament predicted and foreshadowed this all along. One of the most famous passages on this point is Isaiah 53, in which Isaiah describes the suffering servant who would carry the sins of the people. Allow me to read a a brief portion of that passage. You don't have to turn there. Uh, This is Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. And consider, as I read, how this text strikingly predicted the work of Christ for his people. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus took upon himself our sins and satisfied the wrath of God by dying on the cross. It wasn't for Jesus' own sins that he died. No, no, no. He was sinless. He was innocent. He died for our sins. And he was truly dead. Jesus really died. Paul's second point, brief as it is, is that Jesus was buried. This was no illusion or deception, not a figurative death we're talking about, no metaphor here. Jesus was really dead and really buried. But Paul's third point, it might lose you. Perhaps you're tracking. Okay, Jesus died, sure. And he did so for the sins of his people. Okay, okay, sure. And he was buried, of course. But then... Paul writes these incredible words. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus rose and in so doing, proclaimed victory over death and sin. He was vindicated as the Son of God, and now he lives, ruling and reigning 
at the right hand of the Father. So Paul has presented to us the content or the truth or the facts of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus. The question is, do you believe it? Are you willing to call it truth? You might be sitting there thinking, you know, that's a great story, but come on. You're telling me someone came back from the dead? That's, that's unscientific nonsense. I can't possibly believe that. Now, to be fair, in my experience, I have not often come upon instances of people rising from the dead in ordinary life. So to answer the question, how can we know the gospel is true? Paul has come with evidence. I'll pick up in verse 3 again, but read on this time. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Paul comes to us not with photographs, not with DNA evidence, not with fingerprints, but witnesses. First-hand eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But why is it necessary for Paul to give evidence? Why is it so important that the resurrection be true? Paul is going to explain a lot more about that in the rest of chapter 15. So I'll leave much of that for, assumedly, BJ to unpack. But the main thrust, the main thrust is this. If the resurrection isn't true, then the gospel isn't true. If the resurrection isn't true, we have no hope of salvation. As Jesus spoke to his disciples in John 14, verse 19, he said, Because I live, you also will live. You see, not only is Jesus' death for us, but his resurrection is for us as well. If he, in fact, did not rise from the dead, then neither will we. So what does Paul give as evidence to Jesus' resurrection life? Cephas, that is Peter, saw him. The twelve, that is the first twelve apostles, saw him. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive at the time he wrote this, the implication being, go ask them if you don't believe me. He appeared to James, that's Jesus' half-brother, then to all the apostles. Paul comes with a host of eyewitnesses, all attesting to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that repetition in the text. He appeared. 
He appeared. He appeared. In this repetition, Paul is emphasizing the overwhelming tide of witnesses all proclaiming the same thing, Jesus is alive. Now, I'd like to point out, Paul's position is not one of relative truth. This isn't his opinion. Paul is making a claim of absolute, objective truth. The Christian faith has content. And that content is the truth claims of the scripture, namely the gospel of Christ. Our culture today has become enamored with this idea of postmodernism, the idea that the, the truth is not objective, but subjective. Now there's such a thing as your truth and my truth. And if those contradict, there's apparently no problem with that. But a biblical worldview, it's not compatible with this. There is only one truth. And the truth is reality as God perceives it. God is the one who decides what is true. God is the one who decides what is right and wrong. And our biggest problems arise when our idea of truth is on a collision course with God's idea of truth. That's a collision we won't survive. So, circling back to Paul's evidence, Paul gives numerous witnesses to the resurrection, and many would attack at this exact point. They might say, Aha! Witnesses are not a good piece of evidence because witnesses can lie. To which I would say, well, yes, of course, witnesses can lie. That's possible. But these men, they had no reason to lie about the resurrection. On the contrary, there was actually tremendous pressure for them to recant their testimony and cease preaching about Jesus. But scripture and history and tradition all tell us that no such thing occurred Instead, all of the apostles, except for John, were martyred for preaching the good news. So tell me, would these men truly devote their lives and eventually die for something they knew was a lie? Not a chance. Not a chance. They died for that which they knew was the truth, the gospel. At this point, I'm not attempting to exhaustively refute every objection and bring forth every piece of evidence for the resurrection. The topic has been extensively covered by scholars and writers in far greater detail than we could ever cram into one sermon. But the point I'm trying to make from Scripture is that the gospel is objectively true. And it is reasonable to believe so. Now, if that weren't enough, Paul has more to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. Let's finish the passage. Verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul's last point again addresses the question, how can we know the gospel is true? This time, he presents to us himself as a testimony of the gospel's transforming work in the lives of believers. If you've ever watched someone come to faith in Jesus, you might have an idea of where he's going with this. The power of the gospel to change the hearts of the redeemed is undeniably compelling. Those who used to be proud become humble. The impure become holy. The cold become kind. The angry become patient. And Paul, Paul is the epitome of this transformation to the nth degree. Formerly a persecutor of the church, one who mercilessly sought to imprison and kill Christians, this Saul of Tarsus, God redeemed through the power of the gospel. And he redeemed him not to do a little work, but to do a great work, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles of the world. What power could compel such a reversal in demeanor and purpose? It is the supernatural power of God through the gospel. Even someone as opposed to the gospel as Paul is not too far gone to be saved. And what a strong testimony of the power of the gospel. Our Lord Jesus is not too weak to save sinners, but on the contrary, he is strong to save. And it is not only the power of the gospel on display here, but the grace of the gospel as well. How gracious is God? Through the gospel He redeemed a one as unworthy as Paul. Paul, who persecuted the church, and he gave to him the great honor of bringing the gospel to so many. This grace, God's unmerited favor towards Paul, it had a certain effect. It equipped him and it empowered him to strive mightily and work, as Paul puts it, harder than any of the other apostles. It was not because Paul was so great, but because God's grace toward him was plentiful, that he did all that he did. So how can we know the gospel is true? We have all sorts of evidence to see its reasonableness. We have witnesses and so forth. But perhaps more compelling is when we see its transforming work in the lives of others. Paul says to the Corinthians, look, you have seen the work of the gospel in me. You have seen the truth of it in my life's witness. 
And so I would exhort you, Redeeming Grace Church, look around. Do you not see the transforming work of the gospel in the lives of those who have been redeemed? Do you not see your brothers and sisters dying to sin and living to righteousness? Are there not unbelievers coming and hearing the gospel and being transformed by it? And what about you? Do you see its power to transform you as you grow in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord Jesus? If you do, then you can know for certain that this gospel, this claim to truth, is no idle tale. So in our passage, Paul has done a few things. First, he reminded us that we are saved by holding fast to the gospel. And Paul then explained the content of the gospel message, providing not only witnesses, but personal testimony to the truth of it. But above all these things, he wrote, he framed this with, framed his argument with this, that the gospel is of first importance. So what should we do with that? Redeeming grace, since the gospel is of first importance, we must hold fast to it. What does that mean? Well, first, it means not losing sight of the gospel. Paul's reminder, it does not come to us in a vacuum. Paul is punctuating a letter to a congregation which was plagued with a myriad of problems. It's not that they were irreligious. On the contrary, they were greatly concerned with religious matters. They delighted in preaching, but they loved to boast about which preachers they followed. They would partake of the Lord's Supper, but they would practice it dishonorably by overindulging in food and drink while their brothers and sisters went hungry. They delighted in God's grace, but did so to the detriment of their erring brother when they failed to practice church discipline. They were very gifted spiritually, but they abused their gifts instead of using them for the benefit of the body. The Corinthians were enthusiastically religious, but they were losing sight of the gospel as of first importance. They were drifting from the simple message of salvation through Christ's work on the cross, they became enamored with other things, neglecting that basic gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What happened to the Corinthians could happen to us. We could lose sight of the gospel. We could slip into error and dysfunction. That can happen to you. That can happen to me. But it's actually more than dysfunction that we need to watch out for. I touched on it earlier. In verse 2, Paul brings up a critical point that we need to remember. 
for us to be saved, our faith in the gospel must, it must endure. Real faith is enduring faith. The Corinthians' misconduct was raising the possibility that their faith was in vain. And that is where losing sight of the gospel will eventually lead. It leads to a failure to hold fast to the gospel. And so a failure to be saved. Therefore, it is critical. In order for us to hold fast to the gospel, to not lose sight of the gospel. So that's what not to do. What should we do instead? Well, let's look at Paul as an example. How does Paul respond to the gospel? Look again at verses 8 through 10. He writes, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. The first thing I want to point out is Paul's sense of unworthiness to the gospel. Paul directly cites his former life of persecution of the church, but that doesn't mean this isn't applicable to us. This sense of unworthiness is not for Paul only. It is for all those who have been recipients of grace. By definition, grace is when you receive something you do not deserve. And grace is the essence of the gospel. When God should have given us an eternity of wrath, he gave us an eternity of blessing instead. That is mercy and grace beyond all comparison. And if you are in Christ, you are are a recipient of this grace. Let me ask, does that statement seem unsurprising to you? Are you sufficiently amazed at that grace? We sing amazing grace all the time, but do we really find it that amazing? Because we should. We should be amazed, we should be shocked, we should be overjoyed. We have, if you will, struck the mother load. Okay, we, it's like we got scratch off tickets and won, but a thousand, a million times better than that. We have received not a temporal treasure, but an eternal reward, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. So let's do a quick heart check. Are you continually in awe of the fact that all we unworthy beggars, undeserving sinners, have received so great a gift? Be in awe 
of your unworthiness to the gospel and praise God for his grace. In this way, let us hold fast to the gospel. When we gather every Sunday and throughout the week, may our worship be in awe and gratitude of the grace of God. May we be reminded of this grace every day, every hour, because it is amazing. May the sweetness of this grace keep us close to the gospel. But Paul does not stop there. He speaks also of his labor for the gospel. And what does he say? Having been forgiven, does he say, oh, wow, thanks, Jesus, and he goes off to live his life? No. No, no, no. He, he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul worked hard for the gospel because he had received so much grace he desired in turn to give. He desired to live a life devoted to fruitful gospel work. So let me pose the question to you. Is that you? Are you devoting your life to fruitful gospel labor? As a baseline, okay, are you faithful to attend Sunday worship? What does your schedule look like? Are you giving of your time? Or how about your money? Are you giving of your wealth for gospel work? What about your gifts? We have just spent weeks covering Paul's words concerning the spiritual gifts. Are you exercising your spiritual gift for the common good of God's people? Are you striving to minister to your brothers and sisters relationally in our church? Are you striving to make gospel connections with unbelievers that they might be saved? Might there be some ways in which you need to adjust and refocus so that the gospel is, as it should be, the most important thing in your life? And might I make a suggestion? When you make decisions concerning your time, your resources, your relationships, do not simply ask yourself, what is the most convenient thing for me? Or what is it that I want? Instead, ask yourself, what is most needful for the sake of the gospel? I'll give an example. How about your time? How do you spend your Saturday or whatever a normal day off is for you? What's most needful for the gospel? Are you in need of time to recharge and refresh yourself for the sake of continuing gospel work? Or is it more needful for you to be taking care of some necessary chores so your household is running smoothly and well-positioned for gospel work? Or is there some way in which it's most needful for you to be ministering to your fellow believers or unbelieving friends for the sake of the gospel? Obviously, these options aren't exhaustive, and the answer is going to change based on you know, varying situations and circumstances. But if we are to labor for the gospel, we must ask the question, 
in this situation, what is most needful for the sake of the gospel? In so doing, may we labor all the more for the sake of the gospel, holding fast to it in faith, since it is of first importance. Non-Christian, let me pose this question to you now. What is the most important thing in your life? Is it to do well in school or achieve a certain career goal? Is your marriage or your lack of marriage the most pressing issue for you? Are you preoccupied with your bank account or your health? Is the most important thing in your life the pursuit of pleasure and recreation? Whatever it is you hold is most important. If it is not the gospel, you are simply wrong. Some of these things may be important to a degree, but they are not the most important thing. How do I know that? Because all these things will pass away into eternity. Your death will be the end of these things. They will not last. The Lord Jesus, on the other hand, he conquered death. He rose from the grave. Death could not hold him. And what he offers you is not temporal, but eternal. Friend, why do you Pursue things which will ultimately render you no lasting benefit. Why continue on ignoring the God who, although standing ready to judge, at the same time stands ready to forgive? He calls to you, even now. Why do you resist? Hear the call of Christ and believe, believe the gospel that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again so that you can be forgiven. Stop pursuing worthless things and seek instead that pearl of great price, the gospel of Christ. And to my brothers and sisters, let us stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Since the gospel is of first importance, let us hold fast to it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for this glorious truth of the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ, very God and very man, died to redeem lost sinners, and he rose again, conquering sin and death and the devil. Let this gospel be of first importance in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Let us hold fast in faith to this solid foundational truth, and may more lost sinners come to know him, come to believe in him, be saved through our faithful witness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.